0: You are listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. Well, good morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning. And good morning to those of you who are watching online. Um, It's really a privilege and an honor to be here with you this morning, and thank you to Pastor Jason and the Carters for inviting me, and um, thank you for that uh, nice little introduction there. Um, you know, uh, as he shared, my name is Nathan, and um, I'm a pastor in Fontana at Water of Life Community Church. I'm one of our um, associate pastors, and uh, again, it's just it's wonderful to be here to just gather with you and to really just worship the Lord together and really dive into His Word, and so let's pray real quick, and then we'll jump in. And so, Lord, we just um, we thank you, God, for an opportunity to come and gather together, Lord, to come as a body and to worship you and to really hear your heart uh, through your word for how you want to touch and transform our lives. And so, God, I pray that you would just minister to us in this time, God, as we dive into your word, that you would speak life and wholeness and possibility into our life and circumstances, and that you would just be with us, Lord. And so we just invite you into this place and pray that you would just be with us, and we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So a little about me. Uh, I'm married. I uh, have a wife. Her name is Ashley. She's here with us this morning, and um, (laughs) we've been married for 10 years this year, and we have three little ones. Uh, We have a 5-year-old named Samuel, a 3-year-old named Evan, and a 2-year-old named Alana. So those of you with little kids, I understand um, everything fully, and um, and so again, it's an honor and just such a privilege to be here with you this morning. And um, you know, as uh, Paul was saying, I, I've uh, known them for a very long time. We met through UCR, and um, we were taking classes together. We've been um, we were in Campus Crusade together, and. Um, and Associate Paul and I, we took a lot of religious studies classes. He was a religious studies major, I was a minor, I was a business major, which all the business professors thought I was weird for minoring in religion, and all the religion professors were thought I was weird for minoring in, or majoring in business. Um, and who won out, the religious side of things. So um, we had a lot of different classes together, and we had New Testament classes together, and he has stories that he's more than open to sharing about our times in those classes, and... Um, and the reason I share that is because that's really where my journey started. I grew up in the church. i had been part of the church, you know, with my parents from the first, like, Sunday, I think I was alive. My parents were like, you're going to church. And so I've been, been in the church, but it was in those times in college that I really fell in love um, with not just with Jesus, but learning his word and really got, diving into it. And, and I love how God's word not only has the power to shape us and transform us, but there's like these different levels of depth to it. And I love, like, the rich complexities and wonderful complexities of, like, the history and the culture and the linguistics of God's Word. And um, just to start us off here, you know, I, I like to do this with, um, with my students that I teach. I also teach um, Bible classes and religious studies classes at um, a local college. And, you know, one of the, the questions I like to start off with is, um, did you know, you know, for those of you who love studying the Bible, did you know that it's actually the world's oldest hyperlinked text? And you're like, okay, what does that mean? Um, hyperlinks, you know, you, you're all on the internet. You know, like when you click something, it links to somewhere else, and it links to somewhere else. Well, the Bible actually is an ancient form of that. And I brought an image, if you want to go ahead and put it up. I don't know if it'll show up. There we go. So it's kind of hard to see, um, but what you see, it looks like kind of like a rainbow. But this is a really cool image where a computer scientist back, I think in like 2007, he took the entire Bible and he put it in this like Bible simulator of like, how does the Bible connect? He was just curious. He's like, wait, I've seen so many connections and I don't have time or space to figure out how many connections there are in the Bible. So I'm going to let my computer do it. So he did. And it spit out this image. And what this image is, is every single one of the little lines on the bottom, they're kind of grayish white, that's every verse in the Bible. And the length of that line at the bottom shows how many times that verse is either directly mentioned or indirectly mentioned, and how it connects with another verse. So what he showed there was that every single verse there and what you see in this image, it's quite remarkable that the Bible is really um, interrelated and that it's really integrated together, which is quite remarkable, if you've ever studied the Bible and the biblical history of the canon and how scripture came together, it's really remarkable to see how interconnected the Bible is and how the biblical authors really try to highlight other parts of the biblical narratives and the biblical stories. And in fact, it actually, I have the number here, There's 63,779 cross-references in the Bible. It's a lot. 63,779. And this is a massive sweeping text. You have to remember, the Bible's written over a span of thousands of years by hundreds of people from a variety of different backgrounds in a number of different languages. And you go, okay, that's really cool. So what's the point? (laughs) What's the point? Other than fun Bible trivia that you can, like, use at, like, a party if you ever use, like, Bible trivia parties, like, to break the ice. Um, (laughs) But beyond the fact that this is really cool, I really want to dive into one particular text that's hyperlinked and explore how the biblical authors would draw meaning um, from their hyperlinked texts and how they would have, like, an expectation on the audience that you would know what they're referring to, which is really interesting. So we're going to take a look at that. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them um, to Matthew 18, and we're going to jump into um, Matthew 18. But before we jump into Matthew, we're going to look at a particular passage um, starting in verse 20, verse 21. But before we get into that, let's do a quick um, kind of recap of Matthew 18. And um, if you're familiar with the gospel of Matthew, uh, you know that there's this narrative flow that uh, Matthew is trying to communicate to his readers, to his audience, um, and the big piece of this is showing you know how Jesus is the um, embodiment, and fulfillment, and ushering in this idea of the kingdom of heaven. And so, Jesus's first words when he starts to preach is, you know, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." And then he starts diving into these different teachings, and he teaches in all sorts of different styles, and Matthew really highlights that, and he breaks it up into five major parts or what they call five major discourses. And uh, and each of these discourses, Jesus is teaching on something about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God and what it means to live in that. What does it mean to follow Jesus and live in this, for lack of a better term, upside-down kingdom? What does it mean to live in this kingdom of heaven that's radically different than the world in which they occupy? And so Jesus declares that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and that his life is ultimately meant to what? Usher that into a real reality, right? And so Matthew highlights some key teachings um, from Jesus about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. First, you're probably very familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 through 7, and there you have the Beatitudes, and he introduces, you know, a wonderful prayer, the Lord's Prayer, how do you pray, you know, and he introduces some really key fundamental pieces of what it means to follow him and be his disciple. He then goes on, in, in chapter 10, he gives some instructions to his disciples and followers of what does it mean to go out into the world. And what does it mean to minister to other people? What does it mean to follow uh, me in this world? And how are people going to react to it? Okay. And then he continues on, Matthew chapter 13. This is the third major discourse or third major teaching of Jesus. And this is where he starts teaching in what? Parables. And the, you know, if you've ever read some of Jesus' parables, are they easy to grasp? Not always, right? They're somewhat almost like cryptic. And then he always has, you know, some of the biblical authors that Luke in particular highlights this where he's like, and Jesus said, do you not understand? And they're all like looking at him like, no, you know, we don't understand, right? (laughs) Like, no, like explain it. And then he's just kind of like either moves on or explains it again with another parable. And he's like, well, the kingdom is like this. And like, wow, okay. And so, and that's Jesus. He does that intentionally, Right There's this intentionality with these parables. There's intentionality with the stories because it requires what? Focus. That if you're just passing by and you hear a parable of like the parable of the sower and you're like, okay, I'm just passing by and he's throwing seeds onto different forms of soil, so be it. It really forces you to think and question and engage with the one delivering the parable, right? And that's by design. And so he he gives us these parables, these stories about what the kingdom of heaven is like and what it means to live in the kingdom. And then we get into Matthew 18. So we're jumping over to Matthew 18. And this is the fourth major discourse. This is the fourth major um, set of teachings from Jesus in Matthew. And we arrive at Jesus' teaching on kingdom ethics. Really to frame it up, it's how do we live with other people in the kingdom of God? How do we live with other people? And if you've been on this planet for any length of time, you know that sometimes people are wonderful, and then other times people aren't so wonderful. And we do sometimes really not so great things, and we'll just say sometimes awful things to one another, even within the community of Jesus followers. And so Jesus wants to address this going, look, how do we live together in this new kingdom, in this upside-down kingdom, as the new humanity, as new humans who have been touched and transformed by Jesus? What does that look like? And, you know, he's trying to unpack this, right? And so that's where we're going to kind of camp out for a little bit here. And what's interesting, we're not going to go through all of Matthew 18. There's, unfortunately, not enough time, but we're going to kind of touch on some key points because he opens, actually, with a visual parable, in Matthew 18. Not a spoken parable, but a visual parable. And what do I mean by that? Well, he, um, he opens with this visual parable, and then he'll close with a verbal parable or a narrative parable. But um, again, this idea of opening with this parable, it's this visual parable of a child. So he calls a kid over to him. There must be kids running around, which was normal, just like today. Kids are running around. So he calls one over, and he's like, the kingdom of God, you know, um, or he, said that he was asked, who's the greatest in the kingdom, right? So his disciples are still concerned with who's at the top. Who's at the top of the pecking order, right? And you see that's kind of a theme throughout the different gospel narratives where even like um, a mother comes up and it's like, can my kids basically have a higher position in your kingdom? And we see here they're asking, who's, you know, again, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And what does Jesus do? Does he give them a direct answer? I, Kinda, he calls a child over, and he's like, "Hey, um, you need to be like this child." And he sits them down, and it's this visual story, this visual parable, and this example. And you have to imagine it kind of probably baffled his audience. Like, what are you talking about? Be like a child. And this is where my wife, when we were talking about this message, she's like, "You should bring your two-year-old and our daughter." And just like bring her up here and she just, and the kingdom of God would be like destruction because I'd be just tearing this place apart Um, because that's what my daughter would do. Um, She's sweet, but she's very all over the place. And, um, And Jesus responds that, you know, again, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he responds, we must humble ourselves like this child and we must also welcome others as we would welcome a child. We must welcome others as we would welcome a child, that we embrace them, that we bring them in. And that's how he starts off this section of teaching in Matthew 18 of, wow, there's this sense of humility that must take place in the community of God. There must be humility where we don't see ourselves as the most important thing in the universe, which is really hard in our culture, right? Our culture... Um, our whole ethos is about us being the greatest. We're always number one. America's number one, right? And you, as an American, are number one. And you've, you know, if you grew up here, you were probably taught that from a very young age, that you can be anything, you can do anything. And yet there's not much humility oftentimes in those teachings. And so Jesus is coming here and saying, hey, we need to humble ourselves like these children. We must humble and receive one another like we would with kids. Because when you see kids, especially little kids, little, little kids, like, well, my kids are five and under, and so they don't really, even when they've like had like beef with one another or they have conflict, it usually kind of goes by the wayside and they're just like hugging each other all the time. right? There's this simple embrace, and that's what Jesus is really trying to highlight in this passage. And then Jesus goes on. In Matthew 18 and he gives this little story this little um, teaching on the lost sheep and what does it mean to go after the one and that really at the end of the day he's challenging his audience at this time this early group of his followers to be shepherds to one another and go after the lost sheep care for the lost sheep care for those who go by the wayside, bring them back in. And then right after this short little story about the children and the sheep, he goes into this little teaching on interpersonal issues, that what, do you, what happens when you have conflict with one another, right? And he says, you go to the person. And you talk to them, and you try to work it out. And if you can't work it out with that person, you go bring another person in, and hopefully it works out. And then if that doesn't work out, then you go get another person, and you try to work it out. And it's this idea of going, look, there's going to be a reality of your gatherings. Here's a reality of your community. It's not perfect yet. There's going to be conflict, but there's appropriate and healthy ways to deal with it, things built on the wisdom and teachings of God. And so he teaches, Jesus is teaching this community the process of how to deal with this interpersonal conflict and deal patiently but also decisively with also those who choose not to want to resolve anything. And he gives a, a little teaching on what to do with them. And so this leads us to the passage I want to focus on because it opens with a question where Peter opens himself up um, and opens up this this next section. So let's read it together. We're going to read Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. And so it says, Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, Not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times, or your translation may say seven times 70 or 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with his slaves. And he began, when, he began rec- uh, when he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all his possessions in a payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. They were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then the Lord summoned them and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt that you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he could pay the entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So... Obviously, if you've read this before, um, you know, you're like, wow, that's kind of a heavy heavy teaching there. And we're going to unpack this. And there's a number of things I want to highlight this morning because there's just so much to this. But I want to just kind of draw our attention to um, a couple of things. And the first is just kind of some general observations. Is that Jesus believed that forgiveness was so vital to the movement of the kingdom that it was actually the heartbeat of this movement. That God's forgiveness of me and all of us is directly tied to our willingness to forgive other people. That really, according to this parable, Jesus takes our ability to forgive or not forgive very seriously. So there's a sense of urgency. There's a sense of weight, so gravitas, I guess you could say, to this teaching of of this parable that Jesus is sharing. And so in order to kind of Unpack this a little more. Let's take a look, starting with Jesus. Or um, I'm sorry, Peter's line of questioning. Right. So, remember, all of this flows together. They, these stories are not um, isolated or independent, but this is connected to the rest of what we just walked through with Matthew 18, which is why um, it's so important to just kind of touch on those pieces. So, remember, right before Je- or Peter asked his question to Jesus, Jesus just got done teaching about what? How do you deal with interpersonal conflict? So. Peter, thinking about that, goes to Jesus and he's like, how many times should I forgive someone, right? Up to seven times, right? And Peter knows a couple of things. One, he knows the teaching at the Sermon on the Mount, right? He knows it all the way back into Matthew chapter 6 uh, and 5, 6, and 7, but in chapter 6, he hears Jesus teach what when he's giving instruction on the Lord's Prayer? To forgive, right? Right? to forgive. That's a key part of this prayer that we're supposed to do daily, that this is part of we recognize what? Our need for forgiveness and our need to forgive others. So Peter knows this, and he knows that forgiveness is of utter importance, and yet it's pretty clear that he's still not fully getting it, right? Because he asks this, oh, should I forgive him up to seven times? And you go, is that just like a random arbitrary number or does he have some thought behind it? Well, you have to know the the context and the culture, the historical culture. So at this time, the Pharisees who were religious teachers were very invested in um, the scriptures, particularly the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. um, They had a code of ethics that a righteous person would forgive up to two times. That was common in this era. This is common in this, in this world. You forgive up to two times. And if you were really righteous, like really, really righteous, you were special, you forgave up to three times. And then that was it. And that was commonplace in this culture. In this culture, in this time, and in, in this how people thought about this concept of forgiveness up to three times. Peter knows this. He's fully vested in this culture. This is the world he lives in, the world he grew up in. So he's going to Jesus, knowing that Jesus also knows this, and it's like, not two times, not three times. I'm going to surpass the Pharisees, the religious leaders, seven times. And he goes, and what's Jesus' response? Right? Jesus responds in a almost like a hyperbole, right? No, not seven times. How many? 77 times or 70 times seven. An outrageous number in this context. If two and three is righteous, what is seven? And then what's 77, right? And Jesus one-ups Peter and is like, no, you need to do it 77 times. But there's something to that number that Jesus says, which is of real importance to us as followers of Jesus today reading this because you've probably heard that you know that number is so large what does it usually mean like 77 times that you're supposed to forgive it's basically like unlimited right there's just no real number to it Um, and that is one way to interpret it and I think it's it's definitely an appropriate and proper way to interpret it but what's amazing is that I think Jesus is actually pointing to something more because Bible trivia, and going back to kind of this hyperlink image I showed you earlier, does anybody know where the number 77 actually shows up in another passage in Scripture? John, quite John, turn with me then, would you, to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis 4, and you're like, that's a random place that we're jumping into. But you'll see it. Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis 4, if you if you if you're familiar with the whole chapter, it's the story of it starts with the story of Cain and Abel, right? And as you are probably well familiar with, that story melts down pretty fast, right? And Cain murders Abel and the whole point of what the biblical author is trying to show from Genesis 4 on, really from Genesis 3 on, is how humanity spirals out of control. Humanity is in this downward spiral, and these images, these stories, these narratives show us the depth of the depravity of human nature as we spiral downward away from God. And so we get to this point in Genesis chapter 4, verse 19. And we're introduced to this character named Lamech, Lamech. And I don't know if you're familiar with Lamech or not, but um, Lamech's interesting, okay? And we're going to read this. So Lamech, in verse 19 of chapter 4, Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, the other name was Zillah. Ada bore Jabel, and he was the ancestors of those who lived in tents and livestock, and his brother's name was Jubal, and he was the ancestor of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah bore Tubal-Cain, who made all kinds of bronze and iron tools, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nehemiah. Lamech said to his wife, or his wives, excuse me, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to me of what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me and a young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged seven times, truly Lamech 77 times. And you go, okay. So let's give some context to this story with Lamech, because just prior, you've probably read the first few chapters of Genesis, chapters 1 through 3. And what's God doing in the first two chapters? He's creating the world. He's creating the universe. And what does he declare after every day of creation? It's good, right? This word good is really important in, in the biblical um, story here. So this word good, um, or in Hebrew, it's tov. So it's, it's this word good, and he creates these beings, Adam and Eve, and he creates them in what? His image. They're image bearers, right? And it says they're there and they're to go multiply, and they're put in God's garden and his good world to what? To rule and to reign. Right, he, They are co-rulers with God um, in this garden, and God plants all these trees, and they can eat from any of them except for which one? The tree of the knowledge of what? Good and evil, right? Or good and bad, tov and ra. So ra is bad in Hebrew, tov is good. And the serpent shows up. All of a sudden, there's this talking serpent. It comes out and starts talking um, to Eve, and... What's the narrative? What's the statement? It's, oh, if you eat from this tree, there's, God's afraid you're going to become like him. Which is what? The most ironic thing in the Bible, because who is the most like creatures in the garden? The humans. They're already like God. There's no one else in the garden that's like him, right? And so it's this deception, and what do they choose to do? They choose to what? Why is it the tree of Tov and Ra? Why is it the tree of good and bad? They're choosing to define good and evil on their terms rather than who's been defining what is good the entire time up to this point? God. And so by choosing to consume the fruit from that tree, it's a declaration of I'm going to choose good and bad, good and evil on my terms. And what happens? Everything spirals out of control to the point where just a few generations later, Lamech shows up. And what's what's interesting about Lamech? He's got two wives, whereas right before it was, you know, um, it wasn't polygamy yet. And so he's taking two wives, and it's there to show you he's doing things in his own terms, and what does he do? He makes a declaration about, I can avenge myself. I get to choose who lives and who dies. And if if Cain's avenged how many times, seven times? I'm avenged 77 times. So what does this all have to do with going back to Matthew 18? Well, Jesus knows his audience, most likely knows this story. They're well-versed in the Torah. They're well-versed in the biblical narratives that have shaped their community for thousands of years up to that point. And they are well-versed knowing this number, that this number doesn't come as a surprise to them. And so... There's something about this idea of living in God's upside-down kingdom, living in this kingdom that Jesus is ushering in, means that you're going to do it differently. Because in the world that we live in, we're taught what? You get people back. You get it back. You get what was taken from you. You strike back, and that it's within your rights to do so. And what is Jesus saying here when he, tells Jesus, when he tells Peter, no, you forgive, not just 70 times, 70 times 7? He's saying something quite profound, I think, where he's saying living in this upside-down kingdom means we live out of forgiveness and not revenge or personal gain when we are wronged. Mm. And then Jesus jumps into this parable that we just read, and he opens it up. The kingdom of heaven is like this. In order, and he, so he gives this parable to highlight now what Jesus, or I'm sorry, what Peter was asking. He's like, no, let, Peter, let's unpack this a little bit. It's a good question. Let's unpack this. So let's take a uh, you know a couple of key points from this parable. And so when you look at this parable of the unforgiving servant, really it's meant to startle you first and foremost. And you go, how do you know that? I mean, other than just the content might startle you, but there's a lot of hyperbole in it. One, this, the amount of money the amount of money that um, when, it, when this, the king brings the slaves in, the first slave has this unpayable debt. And really, um, you could translate it as like zillions and zillions of dollars. Like it's, it's literally unpayable. Like there's no amount of time that this person could pay off this amount of money, which kind of begs the question, A, how on earth did they get that much into debt, Right? Like that's that's a big key of like, did we ever think about that? Like, we're, how on earth did you accumulate that much debt in that lifetime? But for somehow, some way he did. And that number is supposed to shock you, which is why Jesus starts with it. And the ending is also meant to shock you by how serious forgiveness is in this new kingdom. Hallelujah. That it is of utter, utter importance that we must understand this as Jesus followers. And so what I wanted to do is kind of highlight just a few aspects in light of the Lamech story, right? The Lamech story, again, that's intentional. That goes back to this idea of hyperlinking, right? That the biblical authors do this often, and it's really of really importance to us that we know the scriptures, that we know the narratives, because oftentimes they don't just like outright say, like, I'm making a cross reference right now. Like, sometimes I wish they would. That would make life way easier. But the, the ancient biblical authors weren't really interested in that. They wanted you to be just grounded in it. And so it's first and foremost for us to be grounded in his word and going, okay, I need to be aware of these narratives. I need to be aware of when, when Jesus is teaching these things and he uses something like 70 times 7, oh, that's not just some big number There's purpose behind it, that there's something undergirding it. There's another narrative that he wants to draw truth out from so we can make connections and understand it in a deeper way. And so what's interesting is that this this story of the king, the master, he reflects the good, or the tov, right, of an appropriate way to handle an unforgivable debt. By simply what? Forgiving it. He goes, I know you can't pay it off. I know that there's no way that you can pay it off. And again, what, what is the what's the outcome? What is it, what does the, the text say about um, what happens when you can't pay it off? You go into debtor slavery, which was a common practice in this day and age where your family would basically come live on the property, you'd sell off whatever you had, and you worked it off until you you know, and you'd work for however long you could until you worked it off, which In this case, there was no way this person was ever going to work it off in their lifetime in this parable. And so we get this image, this story opens up, this parable opens up with a good king who says, what? Your debt's forgiven. This is what forgiveness looks like. Go. But then what happens? The very next verse, the slave runs into a peer who owes him a few denarii, which literally is not very much. It's not a lot of money. And what does he do to him? What does the text say? He grabs him by the throat. So he assaults him. He physically, he uses physical violence, right? And again, where have we seen this? Knowing the 70 times seven, right? It's a picture of who? Lamech doing it his way. I'm handling it my way. Somebody wronged me and I'm going to what? I'm going to do it my way. Not God's way, doing it my way. And so he grabs the, the other slave by the throat, and what does he do? Demands the money. And what, is the, what does the guy say? I'll pay it back. And he goes, not good enough. And where does he, this is, this is the interesting part. Where, where does he throw him in? Where, where does he send the slave? Does he, does he allow him to work it off? No. No, he throws him in jail, it says. He throws him in jail, which means he'll never be able to work it off. You can't work off a debt sitting in prison. It's not possible. And we'll get to that. So kind of keep that there in a second because we're gonna unpack that reality of what that looks like. Second, so again, what do we do with this unrepentant slave, right? Because then word gets out and that this slave is dealing harshly with others and the you know for the same exact thing but for a much smaller amount and the king arrives and is like no 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 you are dealing way too harshly you should have done it what like i did it to you you should have forgiven him and so there's a few things that we can highlight about the unrepentant slave that you know perhaps it was you know his behavior shows that his plea for mercy was a hoax or you know his forgiveness was obtained under false pretenses Um, but it really comes down to kind of unpacking what what does this forgiveness look like? What does this mean? What What does Jesus mean by forgiveness, right? Because he never outright just offers you a definition, right? And that's, again, much to how Jesus teaches when he's talking to people. He wants you to wrestle with it when you hear a parable, that you hear a story. It's not just do this and this will happen. It's very much, here's a story, what do you guys think about that? And again, that's by design. Because if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, it requires what? Intentionality and relationship. And so it requires you to have dialogue back and forth. It requires you to gather together and talk about these things and go, I see it this way. Well, I see it this way. Well, let's come together and like, try to unpack this. And so, as we get here, we're going, okay, you know, we know that forgiveness is important. We know that Jesus is taking this very, very seriously in this community of his followers. So what does he mean? Well, I think it's important, again, to connect with the previous story that was, that was shared um, about interpersonal uh, disagreements and, and conflict and You know, when we talk about this, you know, it's really kind of unpacking and starting with what does Jesus not mean by forgiveness? The first thing to highlight, the first thing to highlight is that we often hear that the unlimited, quote, unlimited amount of times of forgiveness that um, is often taught out of the 70 times seven means that, oh, as a follower of Jesus, I just have to kind of become a doormat. I just take it. And oftentimes it's interpreted, I take it in silence. I just swallow it up. People have wronged me. I don't retaliate, but I also don't do anything with it. I just hold it in. And, you know, so much so that some people suffer in silence. Amen. And that's, I don't think that's what Jesus means here. Because when you go back to the previous story about when somebody wrongs you, what are you supposed to do immediately? Do you call like a prayer session and you kind of like pray it out? No, it never says that. It says you go directly to whom? The person. You go deal with it. Immediately. It's meant to be done directly. Right? And you go deal with it. And hopefully, it gets resolved. But sometimes, and we know this, and many of you may know this, that interpersonal conflict, and and I'm using that term pretty loosely and lightly, sometimes it's pretty dramatic. And sometimes... It's very wounding, so much so that it's really hard to be in the same proximity with that person that's hurt you. And so that's why Jesus teaches, what are the following steps you bring other people? That you're not supposed to be necessarily alone with that person ever again. That there's other people in the room with you. There's other people supporting you in this. And that through this, hopefully, it can get resolved. And so really what this is showing us is that Jesus says to create, it's really about creating safe boundaries, having multiple people involved so you're not alone, and that whatever 77 times means, it does not mean putting yourself into unsafe spaces. So that's the first thing, because I think a lot of people have sometimes thought about it that way, even if they've never been taught, but they read it and they go, okay, it's just I just gotta take it. And it's like, no, 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 it's about being direct but doing it with community, which is why it's so important to gather together, to have community with you that can walk you through these things. The second thing that this isn't, and this hasn't, you know, again, this I think it's highlighted by both uh, the parable, but also, like I said, the, the other teaching prior, is the second thing is that forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. Those are two different things, right? That reconciliation often, it really takes multiple people, it takes two people to come together and go, okay, we're going to reconcile and we're going to be okay. And really, Jesus acknowledges what in that story with, you know, you go to the person, and then it doesn't work, you bring more people, doesn't work, bring more people, doesn't work. He finally concedes sometimes they're not going to hear you. And so re- reconciliation it may not be an option depending on the other person but forgiveness still is and that forgiveness is the key to this and so this goes into what is forgiveness and well it goes back to what does the parable say in verse 35 chapter 18 verse 35 of Matthew where does forgiveness take place we have to ask where is that and he says what the heart right? Forgiveness, you have to forgive out of the heart. And what does he mean by the heart? Because I think in our culture and how we think about the world, and we live in a very scientific culture where we know what the heart actually looks like, and we know what it does. um, In the ancient world, the heart um, was very much associated with the mind, so much so in the Hebrew Bible, they don't really talk about the mind as much. It's all about the heart. Everything, Your whole being was in this center peace, this idea that this is where not only you have, like, emotions, but it's also where you make decisions. You make decisions. And that Jesus knows this and going, look, when you forgive, you have to forgive where? Out of the heart, because that is where you make your choice, that it's a choice, that forgiveness is not something automatic. It's actually quite the antithesis of our nature, right? Again, somebody wrongs us, what do we want to do? get them back, right? We want to be Lamech. We want to just avenge ourselves, and thus I am right, and I can stand in that truth. And Jesus is saying, no, if you're going to live as people of the kingdom, if you're going to live in my upside-down kingdom and do it my way and do it the way, again, all the way back to the beginning of who gets to determine the right way, who gets to determine what is good, the good way, the good life, you do it through forgiving others. And so unforgiveness, um, really, it's this this idea of to define forgiveness is really releasing what? The right of retaliation. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm going to release this part of you, that I'm not going to go get you back. I'm not going to hold on to and allow it to fester. That doesn't mean that there's not wounding. That doesn't mean that there can't be healing or there should be healing. But it's surrendering that right of going rather than me making it right on my terms, I'm releasing it and allowing God to do it in his own time. And we know that that's a challenging thing to do. If we've ever sat there and tried to forgive someone, sometimes it's easy, but sometimes it's really not. And sometimes it takes a long time for us to get to that point. And that's why we have community. That's why we talk it out, that we're supposed to do this together, that you walk it out, people that you trust. And I'm not saying you just get up here and you just start airing out all your stuff and to the public. But what I am saying is that like Jesus shows us, you find people that you're in community with, you're in relationship with, that love you and support you, that you can be honest and vulnerable with, and you walk that process out because sometimes it requires a process. And... Again, and what I wanted to highlight here too is that, you know, with with um, with unforgiveness, you know, back into the story, where unforgiveness often makes us irrational, and we see this in the parable, where again I, I kind of brought up the point of what he threw the guy in jail. He threw him in jail. He put him in a position where the other person could never make up for what he had done. And oftentimes, our unforgiveness and our desire for unforgiveness fuels us to do the same because we want to them to be in a position where they can't reconcile. They can't be in a place. And, and that's the interesting part about this because what does Jesus say right before Peter's question, what do we do with the people that, um, <laughs> what do we do with the people in our community that don't want to repent, don't want to forgive, they don't want to reconcile, and what does Jesus teach? You, th- you cast them outside and you treat them as what? Tax collectors and sinners. And most of us think that and we go, oh, they're just banned from the church forever. How did Jesus handle tax collectors and sinners? He befriended them, might not be in that community, but that's an interesting line because so often we go there and we're like, they're just out, they're gone from the community, bye-bye. And you're missing Jesus's heart where he's like, no, you treat them as tax collectors and sinners, which is, who, who is he hanging out with all the time? Tax collectors and sinners, he's hanging out at their houses, he's bringing them into his inner fold. So Jesus still wants to be part of their lives, he still wants to be the Lord of their lives but it might not be in that community setting anymore. But God still wants to get a hold of their heart. And so when going back into this parable where the slave throws the other slave in jail to the place where they cannot even get into that place to repay, so often that's what we want to do. And Jesus is saying what? Don't do that. Unforgiveness leads to that and you build up bitterness and this kind of superiority complex. And again, it flies in the face of all the way back at the beginning of this teaching in Matthew 18 of humble yourselves, be like a child, right? And so again, Jesus is teaching that you don't wanna put people in an impossible situation so that they can feel and know what they did to me, that it's owed to me. Jesus teaches that that's not the heart of the Father. And so you go, so what do you do when you run into this? This idea is, I need to forgive, but I don't want to, it's messy. What do we do with that? And really, again, forgiveness, this first step is to recognize that forgiveness is the decision to give up what is by nature and even to a certain right to retaliate and get this person back. Again, it's a refusal to put this person in a position where it will be impossible for them to make it right. You know, in the kingdom, we give up our right to retaliate and we choose to live lives where there is space for people to have opportunities to make things right. And this is really hard. If you've ever lived long enough on this planet, you know that this is not an easy thing to do when people have wronged you. So how do you do this? What do you do? Well, it's what Jesus said at the end of the parable as well you bring to remembrance God's forgiveness for us, for me, for you, that's the first step that you have to be able to actually process that and remember that and live out of that. So if you wanna be able to forgive, really you gotta be able to remember that you are forgiven, Mm -hmm. that you can't give out what is not in you, right? And so the parable shows what the severe consequences of what happens when we forget God's forgiveness of ourselves. And this is why it's so important, and I'll use a a big church word here for liturgies, right? This is why it's important for liturgies of praying the Lord's prayer daily, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us and for taking communion, doing things in remembrance, that these things are not just, quote, church things, but they're just there to ground us in the reality of what God's done for us, in us, and through us so we can go out and do the same to others and live as children and as people of the kingdom. And so recognizing God's forgiveness of me and us empowers us and humbles us before the cross to see some glimmer of humanity and goodness in others which sometimes, again, is really, really challenging to do. And so as we kind of wrap up here, um, I wanted to read this quote from one of my uh, favorite authors, N.T. Wright, and he, he says this. He goes, Forgiveness is not a moral rule that comes with sanctions attached. God doesn't deal with us on the basis of abstract codes and rules like that. Forgiveness is a way of life, God's way of life, God's way to life. And if you close your heart to forgiveness, why, then you close your heart to forgiveness. And that is the the point of the terrifying parable in Matthew 18 about the slave who has been forgiven millions, but then dragged a colleague into court to settle a debt of a few pence. If you lock up the piano because you don't want to play to somebody else, how can God play to you? That is why we pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That isn't a bargain that we make with God. It's a fact of human life. Not to forgive is to shut down a faculty in the innermost person, which happens to be the same faculty that can receive God's forgiveness. It also happens to be the same faculty that experience real joy and real grief. Love bears all things, believes all things, and hopes all things, and endures all things. And so as we wrap up this time, we must ask ourselves, how are the children of the king supposed to live together? How do we do this in community? We gather together, and I love that that this is a gathering of a family. And we know that if we've, as um, Pastor James was saying earlier, that sometimes family's messy, and it's going to take work, and it's going to take resolution. And Jesus gives us insight and wisdom in how to accomplish that. Matthew 18 serves to define the ethos and the discipline of a believing community focused here on humility and reconciliation with warnings about the severe danger of not forgiving one another. So again, in order for the Jesus community to represent the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven on earth, again, we do the following, and just this kind of a recap of just, you know, receive, as, receive each other as we would a child, shepherd them, shepherd one another as we would a lost sheep, Deal patiently but decisively with those who are in conflict with us and genuinely forgive those who sin against us as many times as necessary. And what does this do? It strengthens the community. These values will strengthen the community's relations and enable it to withstand the rigors of the world, of the culture, of everything that we face. Because let's face it, we, we're bombarded every day with just challenges of life. And yet, we're called to live in a different manner. And again, forgiveness is not something that we naturally do. It takes intentionality and it's a choice. And so I want to encourage us to wrestle with that choice when it's not always easy. Wrestle with that choice and really humble ourselves to a point of going, God, this is this, I'm gonna let you deal with it, not me. And I want to leave us with this, imagine Imagine this, if we actually lived out this truth. Imagine what our communities would look like. Imagine what our families might look look like, our workplaces, wherever. Wherever we are as representatives of the kingdom when we go, imagine instead of harboring issues with one another, we went out and engaged with others and used the wisdom and insights from from Jesus to do so. And through that, we transform our communities. And so, as followers of Jesus, would we, would forgiveness be at the core of our gatherings, of our community, and be an identifying marker that our lives have been transformed for his sake and that our response to individual and communal acts of violation against us ought to be born out of compassion and love because God forgives and that we ought to forgive as well. Amen? Amen. All right. You are listening to the official podcast of The Mission Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.